Thank you so much, worship team. Appreciate that. Thank you, Stacy, for being willing to jump into our rotation mix. It's always exciting to see people step up and use their gifts and abilities. Maybe gifts and abilities you didn't even know that they had. Because if we don't use them, we don't, we're not able to encourage and edify the body, right? So I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for some of you stepping up and being willing to serve on a rotation in children's ministry. That allows more of our volunteers to get into worship and uh, we get more people involved in helping develop the strings and the symphony of our, our young ones and help them know the goodness of our Heavenly Father. I invite you to turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 will be in verses 12 through 18 this Sunday morning as we continue our series. So we go verse by verse to understand this revelation from God about how to live out our faith. James is a very practical book, a how-to book, sometimes a poke-you-in-your-eye book to show you and I where we need to grow. And boy, do we ever need to grow. Our world is not getting closer to Jesus uh, right a bit further away from him. I just read something the other day in the Mexico City Marathon. Any of you hear anything about the Mexico City Marathon? There are 33,000 participants in this huge international uh, marathon, which I'm not a marathoner. I have no interest in being a marathoner, but apparently 33,000 people somewhere were interested. And it wasn't a particularly noteworthy event. There's plenty of marathons. What was noteworthy is that there were 11 runners who were disqualified for cheating. No, strike that. There were 11,000 runners disqualified for cheating. One third of the entire field at some point took a shortcut. Hopped on some public transportation, which, come on, you're standing there in your bib sweating. Everyone's going to see you. Or maybe their friend gives them a ride on a, on a motorcycle or moped to get a little farther along. Or maybe there were some tech, uh, technical errors and their bib didn't register. I suppose there might be a couple in there, but 11,000 people tried to get ahead and they're disqualified. <coughs> their, their times don't count. They don't get a medal for finishing. It was a big waste of time. They didn't finish the race, and they're not recognized as finishing the race. They found it so tempting. We just cut some corners here or there. That'll get us ahead. The Christian life has certainly been compared to a marathon, to a race. The Bible writers themselves, the authors, the inspired by the Word of God, talk about the journey and the race that we're on. Run the race that is set before you. It is a test of our endurance. And as we saw last week in the, in the early verses of James chapter 1, that, uh, that you could also call life a series of trials or tests for the purpose of producing endurance in our life, for strengthening us, for producing spiritual fruit so that we look like Jesus. But if we're not careful, even Christians who know the truth, we have a relationship with God, when we're exhausted, discouraged, we're in the middle of a trial, we can get tempted to try to shortcut our spiritual journey. We see that mode of transportation over there. We hear this voice over here. It looks good. It promises a quick fix. I know God says go this way, but surely that shortcut will take me where I want to go. 
And that's why James writes this letter to show us followers of Jesus recognize the truth. We face trials in our life and we face temptations in our life, but you've got to know the truth to be able to go through both. So our main point from the text, as we'll see, is that followers of Jesus Christ, we are ridiculously blessed because of our Heavenly Father. We're ridiculously blessed because of our Heavenly Father. You'll see what that has to do with trials and temptations in a moment, but let me read that passage for us out loud. I invite you to follow along with me. James says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits. Of his creatures. That's the reading of God's word. So thankful that God is speaking this morning. He has a word for every single one of us. He tells us three things that show us we, we really are ridiculously blessed in the Heavenly Father. Because of Him, first of all, we can know the truth about our trials. You know, that difficulty that you're going through, that hardship you've endured. Now, what is a trial? A trial is an external pressure pressing in on us. Now, these trials, they can happen in all kinds of different ways. Flat tires, broken appliances, uh, stress-induced anxiety attacks, common cold ER visits, losing a job, losing a friend, getting burned by a church. Those things are not temptations in and of themselves things that happen in life because life can be messy in this fallen world so trial tests us tests our faith tests whether we fully rely on god and to see his purpose but ultimately we know that god is in control and god uses trials to make us more like jesus we're not running this race in vain there's a purpose to them but, but external trials, they pull on us, and when they do, they cause to come out what's really inside of us. They reveal. Oh, you think you're spiritually mature? Someone's going to cut you off in traffic today on your way home. What's going to come out? Oh, God bless you. I love you. I, I can't wait to share the gospel with you at the next red light we come up to next to each other. What's going to come out when that trial hits? And ultimately know that the Lord is behind these things, and he uses these things to help us, even when it's fallen people who are doing these things to us. For example, Deuteronomy 13, verse 3. The Lord your God is testing you to know 
whether you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. So tests, just like a test in school, is not meant to fail you, unless you got a really bad teacher. But for the most part, tests are meant to help you keep track of what you're learning and to help you remember those things and that it will come out when it's testing time. You will put down what you already should have read or listened to or paid attention to in class. The test reveals the grade. The test is not meant to fail you in the same way, Christian. We face test after test after test. And I know sometimes we think, God, haven't I learned my lesson already? Or hasn't this test gone on long enough? The Lord says, trust me, I am drawing out from your heart a more sincere love and a stronger faith. And when we fall short in those trials to show us, here's where I need to rely on the Lord more. And I learn from those tests. I don't fail, fall flat on my face and I never rise again. I learn from those. And he's been testing his children from the beginning. He tested Abraham multiple times. Tested Moses, tested Job, and you know Jesus also tested his disciples on a number of occasions. He, he put them into situations that were challenging for their faith. He would ask them questions. Did you hear what I was talking about? What do you think that meant? I don't know. <laughs> Just like we would. Jesus, I might have I might have dozed off for a second there. You're gonna have to remind me. So testing is not bad. Testing is designed to purify our faith and draw out our love for Christ. So what happens when we stress out? When the hardship of the trial, our, our brain just shuts down. We, we mind dump everything we know to be true about Jesus. Like when Peter's walking on the water and he gets afraid and he looks at the water and he starts to sink. Jesus, help me! He reaches out his arm. Does Jesus slap him upside the head and walk away from him? I'll leave you there. This will teach you, put more faith in me next time. No, that is silly, right? Jesus would not do that. He helps him up, and he says, Oh, ye of little faith. Tests reveal, we've got a lot of growing to do. But he's still lovingly, patiently guiding us through those moments. Not one of us has handled all of our trials perfectly, or perhaps even 95% of them. But Christ is with us. When we persevere, this might sound cliche, but we get to see our stressings turn into blessings. Did you get that in verse 12? Crystal clear. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So that word blessed, does that sound familiar? To our men's group it should. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount in our men's group on Wednesdays. That's how Jesus starts off his sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he says, blessed, 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 blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. Blessed are those who, who mourn. They will be comforted. It, it's, it's like a, a rapid fire. Blessings, blessings, blessings. The technical term for that, those are called macarisms. In Jewish culture, that was, that was a regular teaching technique. Drawing your attention to blessed. Who's blessed? I want to be blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So James is, is using that teaching technique. It should remind you of the Sermon on the Mount. It should remind you of things like, uh, what do we have here? Um, well, just many times in the Psalms. Psalm 89, Psalm 100. 
blessed. Blessed are those who what? Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial. Another way you could translate the word blessed is happy. You know, it is possible to have joy and even happiness in the hardships of life. Seems crazy. But what he's saying there is when you don't quit, when you remain in that humble posture to God and you trust him through that trial, you might not be smiling at every moment of that trial. You might not smile because of the trial itself. But when you stand under the test at the end of it, or one day when you stand before me, even if you don't see it in this life, you will see the blessings. And, and that's happiness, to be happy in Jesus, because you've stood the test. The word he uses for standing the test, it's like we said last week, it's that gold or silver that's been purified in the fire. And it's beautiful when you bring it out, but it had to go through some heat, burning heat. 1700 degrees Fahrenheit type heat to remove all of the imperfections and then that silversmith or goldsmith brings it out and it's shining he can see his face in it that's the point of a trial when you have stood the test we didn't tap out early we didn't halfway through decide I'm quitting on God I give up he's out to get me we stand under his sovereign care, we trust him through that trial. And at the end of everything, what does he give us? A crown. But not just a simple golden crown that you can find on this earth. A crown of life. Eternal life. Friends, if you're wondering, am I going to pass the test? Am I going to make it to heaven? If you are a child of God and you have put your faith in Jesus and he has saved you, you're already guaranteed an A+. Plus. Can you get anything better than eternal life? It's done. <laughs> Here is the crown. And who gives it to us? Our Heavenly Father. Aren't we ridiculously blessed? So I'm giving this to you. But I'm your enemy, God. I resisted you. I failed you. I've sinned countless times. You knew all of that and still... You're going to give me eternal life if I just believe in you and give my life to you? Yes. Such is our gracious God. And he is making us precious in his image, in his sight. The more we look like Jesus, the more our current lives reflect our eternal destination. We don't want to just look like Jesus in the future. God, make me like Jesus today, today, tomorrow, and for eternity. And I hope that encourages you as you look towards the finish line. Every single believer is going to get the medal. No one is going to show up at heaven's gates who's been covered by the blood of Jesus. And God says, oh, that one time you, you stressed out. You didn't trust me. I'm not giving you a crown. Every child of God will receive the crown of life. It's a guarantee. Man, that's good. So no trial happens for no reason. Now that is just the first thing that he teaches us here. The second point he tells us is that there is a source of temptation. Now we got to get this clear because in the first uh, in the first point he talks about trials, but then he pivots and he starts to talk about temptations. 
Now, what are trials and what are temptations? Are they the same? Or is there a distinction to be made? And where this gets a little confusing is in the Greek, it actually is the same word used for both trials and temptations. That doesn't mean that they're the same. Just like when we talk about in English, uh, the, the word bark, for example. You could be talking about tree bark, or you could be talking about a dog's bark. It depends on the context. Parasmos in the Greek is the same way. It can mean a, a, a positive thing, a neutral thing, or a negative thing, a trial or temptation. So we have to take our clues from the surrounding text. Now, James clearly says testing comes from God. Yes? Testing. Because testing is meant for your good. Testing is not designed to fail or to crush you. But temptations, a temptation is not for your good. A temptation is not designed to cause you to rely on God. A temptation has caused you to doubt God and to take a shortcut. So that's the difference. So why do I struggle with trials so much? Is God out to get me? Did the devil make me do it? Do other people make me do it? Or did God make me do it? Well, James says, let's get one thing clear right now. God is vindicated. God did not tempt you. God didn't make anybody sin. God didn't put you in a situation where you were forced to sin. God watches out for his children better than that. You can't lay the blame at his feet. He says very clearly in verse 13, let no one say, no one, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So this is a category categorical denial <laughs> like a witness on a stand you know were, were you in this place at this time did you commit this crime no no I, I, I promise I would ask my ask the other witnesses my alibi I was not there I categorically cate I can't even speak today I deny it I deny it <laughs> is God the source of sin denied no God is not the source of sin. He doesn't play with sin. He doesn't say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play with evil, and I'm going to... No, he wants nothing to do with evil. He doesn't tempt anyone. He's absolutely holy, which means he's set apart from sin. Sin and God can't be in the same place. So let that sink into your mind when you think about what Jesus did for us on the cross. Sin did not enter him, but he bore our sins on the cross gracious loving God he, he doesn't desire to sin he's not enticed to sin because sin is the opposite of union with God sin breaks up sin destroys sin destroys families sin destroys marriages sin will send people to eternity in the lake of fire apart from God God wants none of it but then you find a passage like Matthew 4 verse 1 where Jesus has just been baptized and he's about to start preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And the Bible tells us, the inspired word of God tells us, the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. <clears throat> so at first you might say, well, hold on now. Maybe God does tempt because the Father or the Spirit drew Jesus into the wilderness. Well, it says that 
the Spirit led him into the wilderness, but who tempted him? It was Satan that tempted him, not God. There's a difference to be made here. And if you're wondering why on earth would the father lead his son into the valley and then he gets tempted, it's because Jesus is the perfect Adam. Where Adam failed, Jesus did not. And this was a test by God to show his disciples, to show the world, I am pure, I am the Holy One of God, I'm the sinless lamb who can and will take away the sins of the world. Because I fasted for 40 days and nights, I was on my deathbed. And I still said no to the evil one. That is our Savior. That is our King. God tested him. Satan tempted him. Jesus came forth purer than gold. So God can use trials, temptations. God could lead us away from temptation. Sometimes he leads us so that we will face and have to stand on the word that he has given us and not take a shortcut. But he himself does not tempt us with evil. He is the righteous one. So where does the source of temptation come? If God's the source of our blessings, not our temptation, where does temptation come from? Look at verse 14. This is going to make it feel real good, by the way. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So if you want to look at the source of temptation, whose feet am I going to lay the blame at? Well, I guess this is where we look down at our own feet. It's my fault that I fall into sin. It's my fault that I bite temptation. Because temptation, literally the word he's using there, lure, Entice, it's a piece of bait hanging on a hook right in front of us. And like a bunch of gullible fish, we bite. When we bite, when that dangling temptation now is so attracted to us from the inside, this is our desire, our evil desire from the old sinful nature, wants that, feels like we need that, have to have it, we bite, that is sin. Sin has been conceived. It, it, it's like we're laser focused on the wrong thing, which is why we do what we do. We're drooling after the wrong things. We're desiring the wrong things. It could be good things or things that, that can be used by God for good, like money, intimacy, and the covenant of marriage. Someone who wants to make a difference in the world or, or you know, climb up in their company and do good things as a leader. Hey, those, those are not bad desires in and of themselves, but... Now the temptation can be to worship those things, to sell all that you have and pursue those things, to step over people to accomplish those things. Now you've taken the bait of the evil one. Now you've tried to take a shortcut. There is no shortcut. It reminds me of uh, Laser the Lizard, who is a new family member in our house. Right, guys? We caught this lizard, I think it was like a week and a half ago, and he was fast, but we got him. And then we had to figure out what to do with them. What, what, what do you do once you've caught one of these lizards that's crawling around? Well, we had to get a tank, and we had to get a, a heat lamp, and then we had to buy a cup of worms 
mealworms, which is what he likes. He also eats crickets. That was a little too extreme for us. So we stuck with the mealworms, and we feed him three mealworms every other day. And we spray his tank, we give him some water. It's a whole thing. So this is our first pet, right? If you guys ever want to see the lizard, come over to our house. Judah will be happy to show you. This is our awesome lizard. I am not attracted to mealworms. That's, that's not a desire of mine. But you know what's interesting? When I take those tongs and I pick up one of those worms and I drop it in the tank, you won't even get one one thousand out of your mouth before he has pounced and half of that worm is already in his mouth. He's hungry for it. When he sees it, he bites. And then he is satisfied. Well, as I think about our human experience, man, that old nature of ours, it's like we're, we're hungry for worms. We were made for glory in the image of God to know him and enjoy him and to do his will and have dominion over the earth. And we settle for worms. That's sin. Here, lust after this. Hey, gossip about this person over here. Hey, give that person a gesture next time they cut you off. Okay? We were made for so much more. But it's so enticing because that's the old nature. That's the appetite we used to have before we met Jesus. And when I bite, sin now is in my mouth. And, and my mouth is closed around a hook. And now the evil one can jerk me about a bit. Can make a mess of things. The Bible says if you give him a foothold, he can widen that gap and do more damage. So, someone who says, well, it's just it's just me and my phone. You know, no one else needs to know what's going on in my phone. But sin, when it is conceived, grows up, gets a hold of you, what you do on your phone can now destroy a marriage. It can, it can negatively impact your church, your family, or your calling, God's calling on your life. But it's just a little thing. It might be a little thing, but when you bite, the damage goes farther. I've heard it said, sin will always take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and it will cost you more than you are willing to pay. Sin will always take you farther than you want to go. We can't coddle it. We can't have these pet sins in our life or in our closet that every now and then we bring them out, Pet him a little bit, entertain him, and then we say, you know what, I'm done with it. I'm done. I'm gonna put it back in my closet now. Jesus says, there can't be a plan B. You can't have anything in the closet with me. Because that means your desire is not for me. Your desire is for another. And when your desire is for another, the shortcuts are gonna to lead to dissatisfaction. That's why Jesus says, Matthew 5:30. Hey, it is better for you to cut off your right hand and make it into the kingdom of God than to have both hands and go to the lake of fire. Now, he's not saying you should actually cut off your limbs. But I think we don't give that, don't give that statement enough thought. You have something dangling in front of you, that lure, that, that attractive desire. Cut it off. Remove yourself. Don't even give yourself the opportunity to think about munching on it. 
Because if you give yourself enough time to think about it, you're going to do it. Because you're showing that that desire is there. We are going to do, we are going to love what we desire. This is why we can't bow down to what the culture wants us to do. To celebrate alternative lifestyles and shortcuts to God's best plan for us. They're like, well, you don't have to agree with everything we do, but you should at least celebrate us that we're happy and we're doing what we feel is good. I can't. Because the Bible says that that way leads to death. And I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. I don't want that for my family. How can I say that, that that's okay when what that's going to do is destroy your eternal soul? can't do that. I can't even say trust your own heart because my own heart is the problem a lot of times. I need the power of God in my life. And he has ridiculously blessed us with the Holy Spirit, his abiding presence, who's in us, searching through our mind and our heart to help our heart beat with love for the perfect one, for the one who is purer than gold. He is worth your desire. He is worth your taste buds. He is worth your time. So if I were to say, how do we apply this as believers? Well, first, let's cut bait. <laughs> let's not let those temptations just dangle in front of us. Go the other way. Turn the other way. Delete that app. Whatever might draw your attention away. And then if we're using the fish analogy, which I say, let's keep going with that one. Because Jesus did say, I'd make you fishers of men, right? Which means, you know, I was a fish first. I mean, he caught me. Stop swimming alone. When you swim alone, you're going you're gonna to find some bait in the water at some point. But when you're in a pack, maybe with some more seasoned fish, who I've seen that lure before. I've seen it. It didn't go so well. We have someone swimming with us for accountability. Helping us grow to be more like Jesus. Growing our appetite in Christ. But ultimately, not me, not you, not anyone can change your appetite. What you desire is what you're going to do. That's one of the hard things being a pastor. I'm a shepherd. I'm not the one who can actually change your soul. I just lift up Jesus and say, this is who our beautiful Savior is. Isn't he worthy of your time, your trust, your talent, your treasure? Seek him and live. But I can't actually go home with you during the week and make you want Jesus. You have to ask God to grow that desire in your own heart. So what does your time in the word look like as you cultivate that desire and hunger and thirst for righteousness? What does your prayer life look like? I pray for you. Your church prays for you. But do you pray for you? Do you pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Keep my soul close to you. Hunger and thirst for Jesus. And you don't really have to worry so much about the bait. You're going to be hungry in something else entirely. Here's the final thing we're told. Here is the source of our blessings. Take your eyes off the trials and the temptations for a moment. Let's look back to our blessings that we have in Christ. He says, don't be deceived, beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. So the evil one wants to confuse you and make you think that you've got a hard assignment in life, maybe an impossible assignment. God has given you something that you cannot do. He must not care about me. 
He must not love me. Maybe he doesn't have a plan for me after all. Those are lies. The truth will set you free. And the truth is that your heavenly father loves you, sent his son to die for you so that he can meet your every need and bring you safely home to heaven's shore. We're even told he's the father of lights. So imagine those stars that come out at night. A little bit harder to see sometimes in the city. But where my brother lives out in Mayaka City, you go out there at nighttime, oh my goodness, it's, it's the universe in front of you. No pollution at all, just beauty. And I think of Genesis 15, where God calls Abraham outside at the nighttime. He says, Abraham, I am going to bless you. I'm going to bless you so much. Your descendants are going to number like the stars. Try to count those stars for a minute and see how well that goes for you. I'm going to bless you so ridiculously much, you will just trust me. It's an unconditional promise. You trust me, I will bring it to pass. He's the father of lights. He created every single one of those planets. Still creating, actually. The nebula still pop out. Stars and dwarfs and, and, and you know gas, gaseous giants. It's crazy. This is our God and, and his beautiful masterpiece. Don't lose fact, don't lose sight of the glory that will be revealed from our Father. I know, we're, we're in the middle of a trial. The cancer has hit. We're waiting for the doctor's report. Our friend has walked away from us. We fell into temptation again. It's tempting to only look at the problems. God says, don't forget, the shadow is just a part of what I'm doing in this big masterpiece. Just a part. Your trial is not the end all. Romans 8, 28. I am working, and I am working all things together for good. For who? For those who love me. Do you see the beauty that our Father has given us? He's the king of the ages. He's the father of lights. He doesn't change. There's no shadow in him. There's only beauty ahead for the believer in eternity. And it started with our heart. God is doing a beautiful work in every single one of your hearts. Do you see that? If you are in Christ, you're not who you used to be. You've been dramatically saved. You are no longer identified as a child of darkness. You've been born again. You're a child of light. So walk in the light as he is in the light. Don't stoop for the worms on baited hooks, says one pastor. Start living up to who you are and who you belong to. We are the first fruits. We're the first fruits of all of God's children. So here's the thing, though. If we take the bait, if we bite on temptation and we take those shortcuts in life and we don't fulfill God's calling on our lives, you know what we miss out on? Showing that fruit to others. That's one of the biggest issues when I keep my, my personal sin in the closet and I don't let it go and I keep going back to it over and over and over. I'm not able to fulfill the fullest calling and blessing on my life that God has for me. 
Other people aren't able to see the fullest beautiful picture of Jesus, and they need Jesus. So our church is not going to grow at the expense of personal holiness. Our church is going to grow as we fully devote ourselves to Jesus. And as he changes our lives, people are going to want in on this. You mean my life can be changed like that too? How can we sell a lie and say, yeah, he'll change your life, but he's not changing mine. We don't need that. We need the light. We need the light of the Father shining through us. And it's never been easier, honestly, to just live a simple Christian life and shine brightly to such a dark world. This world is messed up. It's going to hell. So just loving your neighbor goes a long ways. Just speaking the truth goes even further. Keeping your commitment at work or to your family or to your spouse, that's a blinding light to this world. So beloved, remember the source of our blessings and let him flow through you and bless you. May we be a church that leans on the Father. We know the truth about trials, so we can and will endure. We know the source of our temptations are not from God, it's within, so I keep a close watch on myself. I need to resist temptation. I need to cut certain influences out of my life that are going to tempt me. But then also I'm going to embrace the blessings that God has given. I'm not going to walk around lashing my back all day in misery. I'm not going to walk around all day miserable because of the trial I'm in. I'm going to focus on the Father. I'm going to focus on the blessings that he's given me. I'm going to share those blessings with others. If you bow your heads and close your eyes with me, I want us to consider these things. Because in a group this size, there, there is a chance that someone is here who does not know God as their Father. You don't have a personal relationship with Him. You haven't experienced and tasted His goodness in your life. And I'm here to tell you, friend, God loves you so much that even in the midst of your disgusting sin and rebellion against God, just like me, He loved you so much He sent His Son to take your place, to live a perfect life, to die on the painful death of the cross, to save us. John 1.12 tells us to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And today, God wants to be your father. Will you allow him to rescue you from your sin and bring you into his family? I invite you to do that. It's not worship if I don't give you the good news of Jesus Christ that will feed your soul and give you eternal life. If you'd like to talk about that after worship today, we'd love to step to the side and talk to you and show you from the Bible how you can know for sure that you have eternal life because God is your Father, Jesus is your Savior, and His Holy Spirit will come and dwell inside of you.